Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome back to Oshkosh, Wisconsin for another episode of EAA's podcast, The Green Dot. I'm one of your hosts, Hal Bryan. I'm senior editor for content, uh, print and digital publications here at EAA. With me over here on my left. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Museum Program's representative. And across the table. Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director. All right. Excellent. Tom, uh, we're lucky to have uh, a terrific guest today, uh, somebody who's a great friend of the organization. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you do the honors, introduce him for us? Absolutely. So Charlie Precourt is the uh, Vice Chairman of uh, our Board of Directors here at EAA. Um, and uh, prior to that, uh, his um, uh, most notably known in aviation as um, being an uh, astronaut, uh, mostly involved with uh, the uh, the shuttle Mir program back in the uh, back in the 1990s. He graduated from the Air Force Academy in 1977. Uh, he was an Air Force test pilot. Uh, was involved in the uh, the F-15E Strike Eagle program and later instructed at the Air Force Test Pilot School. Uh, he joined NASA in 1991 and he flew on four missions. Um, first on Columbia STS-55, and then he flew the first docking um, of uh, the shuttle and Mir on STS-71, and that was um, with Commander Hoot Gibson, uh, who was uh, all, was and is also a, a very involved EAA member, and they actually signed up the entire crew for EAA on that mission, uh, and even got a shout out on, uh, on uh, with Katie Couric on a uh, on a TV interview, uh, which was uh, which was pretty neat. We actually have a reproduction of a bumper sticker that they uh, that they flew on the shuttle on that on that mission. Um, uh, Chris is holding the bumper sticker up to the mic right now, so you can hear it. <laughs> You've heard space. <laughs> I thought there was no sound in space. Shh. Okay. <laughs> this thing's falling apart already. <laughs> so Charlie went on to command uh, two more missions uh, uh, to Mir, um, STS-84, another mission on Atlantis, and then uh, 91, which was the final um, shuttle Mir mission on Discovery. Uh, he's also uh, built a very easy, a Rutan uh, design canard aircraft. Um, and uh, he is the chair of our safety committee, which is really how I've been working with him uh, professionally for uh, close to five years now. And, uh, and just kind of on a personal note, that was um, when I first came on here at EAA in, in our department. I was uh, 24 years old. And uh, one of the first things that I got to do was I was called into a meeting with, uh, with Charlie, my boss, Sean Elliott, and Jack Pelton. Um, and I guess if um, if seven year old me could have seen that, uh, he would have been really excited. But it's not like that at all. Charlie, Jack, and everybody else here are here because um, they they love EAA, they love um, personal aviation, and they want to make it better. And um, I've worked with Charlie now on on several projects, including uh, the additional pilot program for uh, flight testing amateur build aircraft, which um, has been um, able to make some real positive changes. I think in our community and um, and he continues on as the chair of our safety committee and uh, and we've um, we've been doing a lot of uh, really good work I think and and look forward to continuing to do that so Charlie welcome thank you has it been five years uh, almost yeah it must be a lot of fun and it is and that's you know as they say time flies when you're having fun so absolutely really great <laughs> so Charlie let's start out I want to know uh, a bit about your history let's go back uh, back to the beginning uh, I mean the earth cooled all that kind of stuff but a little <laughs> little later than that when did you first get involved in, in aviation? Was this something you were interested in as a kid? It, it was. Um, my dad was involved in it. Um, he uh, had a business uh, back in Massachusetts where I grew up um, that uh, delivers uh, and fabricates stone for construction projects, stone quarries, all the way okay. to milling it. And he would travel 
uh, throughout the states to various quarries to line up architect requirements for different jobs, and he got into flying uh, as a way to, you know, facilitate that process. Sure. So as a real young kid, I'd go, when I'm not in school, I'd be off uh, flying with him in a Mooney or a Cherokee and having a lot of fun. Um, and I really got bit by the flying bug, you know, before I was really out of gra- gra- grammar school. You know, it was just something that was always there. My uncle was also in the Air Force, and uh, of course, in those years, um, in the 60s, we were just getting into the space program, and so I kind of saw all these dots connecting. The original astronauts were former military test pilots. I had an uncle in the Air Force, and my dad had introduced me to flying, and I was very early on very motivated for a direction to pursue in my my, uh, schooling and my career. So you had your your eyes on the astronaut prize from a very early age. It was a very funny story because uh, I think it was uh, the fall of uh, the year I entered seventh grade as you come back from school, as teachers often do, you're sitting in the classroom and teacher says, let's go around the room and reintroduce ourselves and everybody tell us what you've uh, done for the summer and what you want to be when you grow up. And so we're going through the process and a young girl across the aisle from me um, gives her story and says, and when I grow up, I want to be an astronaut. Of course, this is really early in the space program and everybody erupted in laughter and I'm sitting there thinking, boy, that's what I was going to say, but I'm not saying it now. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I also, um, uh, a little bit later, um, as another connection to aviation, my dad um, was actually renting uh, aircraft for the purposes of flying on business from Mike Goulian's father, um, Myron Goulian, who had oh. started an FBO and at what it, it was then and still is, Hanscom Air Force Base, uh, Joint Use General Aviation and Military Field in Massachusetts. And um, my dad and Myron, Mike Sr., kind of went in together on starting what is today Executive Flyers Aviation in Massachusetts. And and so um, uh, Mike's dad actually signed me off on my private pilot's license. Wow. So you've known Mike, a a fellow board member, noted air show before. You've known him for for years. He's much younger than I, but uh, we've known him since we we used to go out and dying together as you look the same age stuff. just yeah. just so you <laughs> that's know that's good yeah but uh it was a lot of fun uh, having those connectivities in in aviation in those days so that's great so can you tell us about your progression uh into becoming a test pilot and and of course into to becoming an astronaut how does that how did that all come together yeah as i mentioned the especially early in the space program, uh, NASA had enlisted the support of the military to bring test pilots into the program. Uh, there's, there's an aspect of training that you can't find anywhere else in the military flight test arena because it's so rigorous and, and handles the most performing aircraft there are and the rigor of uh, the academic discipline that goes into understanding how an aircraft uh, is developed and expected to perform and then actually going and de- you know, doing the development flight test to demonstrate that it performs the way you expect. It's high risk and it's highly technical and you can't get that kind of training anywhere else. So the NASA, I think correctly and still does focus on leveraging that asset. Uh, It's literally a national asset to have that kind of developed skill in the country. Um, My own interest in math and science in school and and having the motivation inspired in me by my, my family, my dad, my uncle, and others, the Goulians and so forth, um, kind of gave me that initial vector uh, and awareness 
Um, and so uh, kind of another funny story, when I was in the seventh grade, I, I was part of a school town or school uh, assembly. The vice principal was bringing in um, uh, some teachers from a local university, a community college, to get us all exposed to the idea that we should go on to college, because in my little hometown, hardly anybody did. Um, you graduated, you went to work. Um, but uh, there were a few that would go on to college, and I was inspired to do so. And he had this young guy, a professor in from a local community college, tell us what we should be thinking about to apply for college. I'd already looked up the Air Force Academy and the other academies as a pathway I was interested in, inspired by my uncle. Had gotten the catalog and looked through what it took to, to apply. And I went up to the vice principal at the end of the assembly and said, so I need to get more information on how to join the, you know, get into applying for and getting accepted in the Air Force Academy. And it was funny because at the time that was kind of set him aback that nobody was thinking like that. And he said, son, I think you're shooting too high. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, oh, yeah, well, watch this. <laughs> and it's a true story, and I tell it a lot because I want, you know, if it were someone else other than my personality that heard that, they might have deflated and gone and, and hidden in a corner and not right. tried to pursue it. It just inflamed me to work harder at it. Yeah, good for you. I, uh, I hope you send them a picture from Orbit at some point. I don't think Is I, this high enough? I don't, I don't think I needed to, but yeah. If you don't, we will. We'll yeah. follow. We'll find this guy. We'll get him on. But uh, so the, the pathway was pretty clear in those days from, you know, but at the same time, I have to say that um, had I not ever been selected for the astronaut program, I was finding that pursuing my passion in flying and in engineering, uh, making it into the Air Force Academy and being able to be exposed to ever more um, significant levels of technology and engineering was really exciting to me. And I always tell kids today too that you need to enjoy what you're doing in the moment because you're building um, credentials and expertise that will apply down the road. Don't just have your eye on the end game because you'll miss the things along the way. So, um, you know, I, I uh, did well at the academy enough to to go on and do uh, flight training uh, because I'd had uh, a lot of prior exposure to flying. I did very well in flight school, um, and uh, and then unfortunately a little bit too well. They made me stay on and instruct for a couple three years, <laughs> which delayed my entry into the F-15 program. But I I did after doing some instruction get uh, picked up to go fly F-15s. Went to to Europe and. Flew F-15s operationally, wonderful assignment before the Cold War was, was over. Um, meeting Russians on the border and wagging wings and turning away, uh, chasing bear bombers across the North Sea on their way to Cuba, badgers and bisons and all kinds of former Soviet um, heavy aircraft that would get close enough to NATO airspace that we'd have to go up and intercept them and, and, and so forth. Excuse me, Charlie, but at that point, uh, height of the Cold War, what would you have said if somebody came and said you're going to spend some time aboard what would then what would eventually be a Russian space station? You're a great straight and you'd get man. there. You know, people are getting there on a Soyuz, not you. But you're a great straight man because you might not believe this, but actually, um, when I first fast forward to when I joined the astronaut program, um, uh, it was a national program only for the space shuttle at the time and. Within a year of arriving in Houston, um, the, the wall had come down and we'd opened up uh, an intention to have an international space station with collaboration from the Europeans and the Canadians, the Japanese, and now all of a sudden the Russians, because the president, uh, George Bush Sr., and then Clinton picked it up and carried it even further, said, we need to 
pull these guys in under our arm and, and collaborate with them. Let's do something in space with them again like we did in Apollo-Soyuz years ago. And so my first trip to Russia, I get introduced to a, a cosmonaut by the name of Vasily Tsibliev, who just happened to have been flying MiG-23s in East Germany at the no. exact same time I was flying a 15s <laughs> in West Germany, and we would tell each other German sto Germany stories and how likely it was that we'd maybe cross paths in the skies, you know. Yeah, that's now, amazing. To follow fast forward even further, on my second flight, he was the commander on Mir when I commanded the Atlantis to go dock, um, the second docking that I did, um, STS-84, uh, to the Russian Mir space station. So we, we carried on, and then subsequent to that, he became the, the chief cosmonaut, and I was the chief astronaut in the program and got to work together for many years. And, you know, had a few key points in history gone differently uh, is might have been in combat. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Just right there, you yeah. know, shooting at each other over the fold of gap or something. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's incredible. Yeah. Wow. Just mind-blowing. Yeah. But uh, I guess I got a little bit far, far afield from your question, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. I'm enjoying it. So. <laughs> We're all along for the ride. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the pathway was pretty clear because of the military focus early on in my uh, upbringing. Um, and so... I, but I do have to say that, you know, all of those flight assignments, um, being an instructor, going into the F-15, then going to Edwards after my tour of duty in Germany to do flight tests, I would have been very satisfied to continue doing any of those flight assignments in the military. Um, and um, the the idea to go into the astronaut program came up um, after I'd finished a couple of years at the test pilot school, and, and I thought, I'm going to go for this, but... Uh, I've always thought about it, and a young girl in seventh grade said she wanted to be one, and everybody laughed. Well, maybe I'm going to give it a shot here, and it worked out well. But I, I really got to emphasize that you have to enjoy what you're doing along the way, or you really aren't developing through your passion, the skills, and expertise you need, right? So um, I've been very fortunate. So, Charlie, uh, I'm sure you get this question a lot. You know, we have a lot of... Uh, general aviation pilots, aspiring pilots, aviation enthusiasts um, listening. And um, can you just tell us a little bit about what it's like to actually land the space shuttle, uh, what, the, what the process is like, and how sure. it might be, I would imagine, radically different than a lot of the flying that we do. It is. And uh, to do it justice, I probably ought to start with uh, initial deorbit, because it, it kind of explains the different phases of flight you, you uh, transfer through. Uh, coming back from orbit all the way to touchdown, because it really isn't um, a typical aircraft until the very last couple of minutes uh, of that reentry. But um, we um, we circle the Earth about once every 90 minutes, um, and in order to get a deorbit and reentry to work properly, we actually have to phase that uh, halfway around the Earth. We start the deorbit um, somewhere over the Indian Ocean by flipping the um, orbiter tail first. And we'll fire the engines, uh, the orbit maneuvering system engines, OMS engines, we call them, for about four minutes. Um, and um, that slows you down uh, a few hundred feet per second. Uh, you're traveling at 25,000 feet per second while you're on orbit. That's the velocity required to, to maintain a stable orbit around our, our planet and the size of our planet and the amount of gravity we have. That The math works out that if you're spinning at that speed, you'll stay in a stable orbit. If you go a little faster, you... You, you know, you skip on out to higher orbits or, or you escape the Earth's velocity. If you go a little slower, then you come on back in. And so we only take a few hundred feet per second out so that we make that a gradual descent 
um, and not too steep. And so the whole thing about the shuttle orbiter's reentry is due to the the energy that you're taking out of the vehicle and the thermal and G loads that can come on. If you come in too steep, you'll burn up. Um, if you come in too shallow, you'll skip out and won't capture the atmosphere. So there's a corridor that we designed that is kind of just right. You know, the Goldilocks uh, flight path to come <laughs> on in. And uh, and so what'll happen is um, you'll you'll not notice any change for 10, 15 minutes because you're still just kind of coasting outside the atmosphere. And so in that time, we reorient from tail first to belly first at a, about a 40 degree pitch up attitude um, so that the angle of attack when you hit the atmosphere is, a, is in the 40 degree range, exposing most of the shuttle's um, surface uh, to the, the flight path vector and the relative wind is now the belly uh, where all the tiles are. And the temperatures are going to shoot up to 2,500 degrees, and those tiles were meant to handle that. And so the upper surface that you see is white is also thermal protected, but to lower temperatures. So that's why we fly at that angle of attack. And so the initial angle of attack is wings level, 40 degrees, as you hit the atmosphere. And a funny thing happens, you see the, the velocity tape click up because we get uh, a different set of displays for atmospheric flight from when we're on orbit. And you actually see a Mach number display, and it's about Mach 25. Depending on the inclination <laughs> of your orbit, um, it's Mach 25.1, plus or minus 24.99, 24.95. It's in that range. Excuse me, Charlie, quick question. So mm -hmm. you're getting different information as you're transitioning. When you're in orbit or if, yeah. just prior to this, do you, do you see that 25,000 feet uh, per second? Do you actually see that value no, somewhere? No, we don't worry about it when we're in orbit. Those because displays just, are not active okay um, we actually will mode the software from one phase of flight to another so we have an ascent we have a post insertion we called it right after ascents over then we have a general orbit set of displays okay. um, we can orient the orbiter relative to points in space or relative to the center of the earth and depending on what your mission is you will orient the orbit in space according to that to point cameras in the payload bay towards a star or towards the the galaxies or towards objects on the earth for right. earth studies and so forth so that's a different set of displays okay. that would make sense that. yeah so anyway so we're, we're we're slowing down to mach 25 now <laughs> yeah. you know yeah. at a reasonable speed yeah <laughs> go and, ahead and please. so uh, the first thing that happens is of course you're you're strapped in you got your pressure suit back on and you're strapped in and and uh, you're waiting for re-entry to hit and uh, you're still weightless so you're kind of you know, held into the seat by your straps, and you can take a pencil like like the one I have in my hand here, and you can hold it up in front of you and let go of it. It'll float there. But as the the mock tape starts to operate, you're getting atmospheric reentry interface. It's around 400,000 feet of altitude at 25,000 feet per second, Mach 25, and this pencil will just gradually start to drop about that fast oh, wow. and what that is is this drag starting to come on and the drag is what you're feeling is gravity returning very ever so slowly you push pencil back up and it'll start to fall a little bit faster you're getting deeper into the atmosphere and what's happening now is you're getting drag and the drag is is there it's actually you're getting lift and drag right just like a, a vehicle in an atmosphere again and so you'll that lift would start to actually skip you back out so we roll over to 70 degrees of bank at the right moment to capture and so now we're still at 40 degrees angle bank, 70 degrees, one wing down, depending on where the landing site is relative to our trajectory. And we'll just hold it there and, uh, and we'll oscillate the bank angle 
to maintain the altitude rate of descent that we're seeking. We, again, we want to come in that Goldilocks trajectory, not too steep, not too shallow, and to stay right on the line, we will vary the bank angle. You take some bank angle out, you, you, you uh, climb a little bit, put some more bank angle in, you descend a little bit. T totally the opposite of a normal airplane, putting the nose up and down. Right? You're actually varying the bank angle to affect the, where the lift vector is. It's not pointed up, it's not pointed down, it's pointed to the side, and you just kind of vary it a little bit to, to control the bank angle. Once you get enough drag, of course, the vehicle actually starts to turn. It's, it's, on a, it's plowing straight ahead at a 40-degree angle of, of attack, but after a while, it starts to turn in the direction you have the wing down, and you don't want to do too much of that, or you'll be off track to your landing site, so you reverse the bank. And we'll do one or two roll reversals all the way down. And uh, I recall uh, hitting uh, on my third flight, it was kind of neat because the reentry trajectory was uh, from the north to the south instead of south to the north into Kennedy. And what that means is instead of coming up over um, the Pacific across Mexico and, and the Gulf into Florida, we came up over uh, Vancouver, Seattle, and, and down across the U.S., St. Louis, and so forth. And we traversed the entire United States in about 12 minutes. <laughs> and we re reversed bank twice. And, uh, and so now you're at 40 degrees angle of attack still. And so as you get slower and slower, um, the trajectory you're trying to achieve is steeper and steeper because you're getting slower into the atmosphere where there's less heating. Initially, your bank angle looks so, your uh, descent angle looks so slow, it looks like you're going to overshoot Florida by thousands of miles because you don't <laughs> appear to be coming down fast enough. But as you get slower now, you can afford to be steeper because there's less heating at the slower. So around Mach 5, this, the, the pitch angle really starts to steepen up. And, and so we reduce that angle of attack um, as that's happening. And, uh, and it starts to be a little bit more like a normal airplane. At, at below Mach 5, you start to see the nose pitching over in there. It, all of a sudden now, instead of looking at the horizon, you're looking at Florida straight below you. And um, by Mach 1, we're ready to take over manually. And uh, we will follow um, steering commands much like an ILS, except they command you in uh, by microwave. It's a MLS, microwave landing system, command you on a curvilinear path to fly around a cylinder kind of trajectory. Uh, if I can make that picture in your mind a little bit there. You're directly overhead the, the runway, uh, if you will, at 40,000 feet. And every 90 degrees a turn, you're going to lose about... 12,000 feet of altitude. <laughs> oh and so you roll out on final after making this, this circle, you roll out on final at uh, 20,000 feet with an 18 degree dive angle. Now it's starting to fly a little bit more like a, uh, an airplane. And we will have trained in a, a, a modified Gulfstream G2 that has thrust reversers going while it's coming down final uh, to, uh, to to simulate the drag of the orbiter and, and you're ending up about 300 knots steady state at 20 degrees, 18 degrees dive angle from 20,000 feet all the way down. And, and, uh, and excuse me, for those yeah. that, are, that are listening that, uh, that, that may not be pilots or may not be flying, uh, when we're the types of flying that, uh, you know, three of the four of us at this table are a little bit more used to, um, 
when we're on final approach, we might be rolling out at, at you know four to five hundred feet, depending right. on how far we are, and right. and we're looking at, at usually a two and a half to three degree right. descent right. angle. So you're uh, you're overhead at twenty thousand feet on final approach, coming down eighteen degrees, yep. and what two hundred and three hundred knots. Three hundred knots. So we're if I take it to an analogous situation, we're at twenty thousand feet uh, at the base with ninety degrees of turn to go to final, and we roll out on final at twelve thousand feet with a eighteen to twenty degree dive angle. Um, and uh, and so we're aiming for a point, and this is because the, the glide ratio of the shuttle is so low, it's like five to one at best. And so we're aiming for a point short of the runway at 300 knots such that we can raise the nose and stretch in to land in the end game. So we hit 2,000 feet and we do what's called a pre-flare from 18 degrees to that three degree glide path you're used to. But it's never a stable approach because the whole way to touchdown the airspeed's airspeed is bleeding off. So we're constantly, just gradually, after we capture that interglide path, we're gradually raising the nose all the way to touchdown because we go from 300 knots to about 200 knots, 195 to 205 for our touchdown target. Wow, actually touching down. So it's pretty, pretty dynamic. It's never what you'd call a stable approach. Right. I've never heard anybody mention the word slow and Mach 5 in the same sentence. <laughs> <Right. laughs> well, remember, we were cool. at Mach 25 when we well, started. That's true. That's yeah, very it's true. all relative. Yeah. Right? You know. <laughs> I remember one time in the RV6, I was about Mach uh, 0. 0.05, and that was, uh, that was pretty intense. I had never met an airplane that went fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> There's no such thing. Well, speaking of uh, speaking of airplanes that are that are fast but considerably slower than that, uh, you built a very easy I did, one point, yeah. right? Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about that? What what prompted you to do that? And I'm especially interested, you've flown F-15s, you've flown the space shuttle. Um, some people might say that's, you know, I've already flown the coolest things there are. <laughs> I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go play golf or something else. You know, you staying in aviation through that uh, very easy and all the other things you've been doing. You can tell us a little about what, what your thinking is there. Well, it's interesting because my own personal interest was in the, uh, variety of things that are in aircraft designs not necessarily the the biggest fastest uh, but all of them um, I could have flown a helio courier and it's just an amazing experience when you lift off the ground and there's no airspeed indication yet <laughs> you, you you actually wait for the leading edge cuffs to to droop they're drooping and when they start to flutter back you got enough wind over the wings to lift it off and the airspeed indicator still hasn't done anything <laughs> it's awesome so there, the point is that I love the fact that you can explore the personalities of all these different designs. And when I, the two things that caught me, um, growing up I used to like to work with my hands, um, help my dad in the family business and stuff. And um, the two things that struck me about the very easy was the idea, one was the idea that I could build this myself. And the other was it was composite material construction uh, and then kind of in a third place was the canard configuration and the intrigue around that. So um, I was obviously, I was flying three and four times a day in my career in the Air Force at the time. I didn't need an airplane to go fly. I wanted to learn what building was all about, what this design was all about, what composite materials were all about. And so I dove into that project with those as kind of the objectives. You know, this is a design that I can know intimately and therefore I can be confident in in the fact that I can fly it. And I finished it about the time I finished test pilot school, so I just, you know, by timing coincidence, had a lot of background in how to go conduct the initial flight test of it. The, the folks at Rattan had put together a very nice uh, package on how you should approach the initial test flights and so forth, which I followed, but I also had 
a lot of help from my buddies at um, in the flight test community, Edwards first, data collection goes and so forth. Um, so I enjoyed that whole evolution as, you know, a, a way to, to link what I was doing professionally as a test pilot to what I could do recreationally with an airplane I built myself, and I just got a big thrill out of it. Like I said, it wasn't something I was, like a lot of folks do, they, they build an airplane because it's their only access to flying. I was flying as a career. Right. So it was a totally different motivation for me. I'm so glad I did it because I learned a ton doing it. Well, and obviously that, uh, you know, that experience has uh, uh, informed you uh, what, uh, you know, what our piece of the aviation world is all about. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, you know, along with all the other backgrounds, makes you such an asset to have the organization, if you Thank don't you. mind me saying so. <clears throat> And Charlie, you, you and uh, Hoot Gibson also uh, used to fly Cassett racers together, right? We did. Well, he had a Cassett, and I had the very easy. So occasionally we'd fly some formation work together. I have a couple of neat photos of us in formation um, over the Johnson Space Center, uh, <laughs> on, uh, just above, vert over top of the Saturn V that oh, was on wow. the, in the display area underneath us. It was a pretty cool picture. That's awesome. Yeah. I would love to see that. So Charlie, currently you're working uh, with uh, Orbital ATK, mm -hmm. um, a uh, and you're you're based uh, based out of is Utah. The oh, yeah, the organization based out of Utah as well. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the headquarters of the company is in Dulles, Virginia. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, you are um, you're working on several major projects for NASA right mm -hmm. now. Um, can you tell us a little bit about I, I guess maybe a little bit about what NASA is currently doing? Sure. And kind of uh, and kind of where we're going because I mean we're not we, we as as a nation are not launching people into space currently right. with our own rockets, but mm -hmm. we do uh, have a, uh, we've had a continuous presence in orbit for uh, quite a long time at this point. That's, that's pretty impressive. But what, what are we looking to build on? Yeah. Um, thanks. That's a good question. We uh, we're unfortunately in a hiatus that's gone on longer than it, it uh, we would have liked. Um, and, and it happened between Apollo and space shuttle. We were, um, you know, roughly six years uh, without a capability to fly our own crews to space. And that's kind of what happens when you transfer from an existing operational vehicle to a new developmental vehicle is you, mostly due to funding uh, and resources, uh, people resources too, you, you're hard pressed to continue to fly the, a vehicle like Apollo or shuttle while you're designing and doing the, the spending resources on something new. This particular gap has gone on quite a bit longer. The last flight of the space shuttle was in 2011, and, and we're still looking at, you know, 2019 before we fly our own uh, vehicles again um, with our own crew on them. But we are making final, we're getting into the final legs of, of getting those systems going. Um, what really happened was after the Columbia accident, we recognized that uh, the shuttle, for all its great capabilities, had some um, shortcomings in the design uh, from a crew safety standpoint that were probably best addressed by um, rethinking how we want to do our missions. Um, and so we, we looked at um, what should we do relative to continuing to exploit space station and low Earth orbit, and then what can we do to go beyond? And um, the whole idea here was um, you know, Mercury was about can we put a person into space and get them back alive. Gemini was now that we can do that, can we do productive things in space? Let's put two people up there. Can we do rendezvous? Can we do dockings? The kinds of things. Can we do spacewalks? The kinds of things we'd have to do if we ever aspired to get to the moon. Apollo, of course, took all of that and said, yeah, we can get to the moon, but we can't take much. I mean, when you think of how huge that vehicle was, 
all that came back was the three guys in a capsule, and and we left the limb, which is not very much mass, on the on the surface. So we couldn't go to stay. Now the question is, um, what do we need to go to stay and to live long term in space? That's what space station and shuttle were all about. Was let's get to a little bit more routine cadence of getting to and from space. We've had crew on orbit in space station 24/7. Um, for 16 years now, I think it is. Um, and, uh, and so we now understand what the effects of long-term living in space are. The next system that w- or systems that we're trying to build would be smaller launchers, way smaller than shuttle, that can carry just a crew with its capsule to a space station back and forth regularly while building a much bigger system to go beyond low Earth orbit, to go establish a sustainable outpost in a what we call cislunar orbit, an orbit around the moon from which you can deploy landers, uh, but also from which you could deploy deeper space, um, in space transit vehicles with habitats and landers to go to places like the moons and Mars and Mars, and even send unmanned probes to the surface of uh, Europa, which is a very uh, interesting place, a moon of Jupiter that has this ocean ice coating over it, and folks speculate there might be a si- signs of of life in that ocean underneath the surface of Europa. So, although Arthur C. Clarke warned us not to go to Europa yeah, in the movie uh, 2010, yeah, Odyssey yeah, 2. Yeah, I know. I guess I had to establish my nerd uh, base camp here and remind you of that. So, yeah. so I'm on record. I got you. Europa is not a good idea. <laughs> I'll write. Yes. Okay. I'll, Sorry, Charlie. I, I got it. <laughs> that's one one voice of dissent. I got to get you hooked up with a few people I know that. Uh, well, that's good. I, I've got my foil hat uh, back in the back in my desk so I'm, I'm already but i hope i've painted a picture of a vision for bigger deeper exploration Absolutely. on the foundation of all we've done today you know it seems like a long time but you know we're 50 years into our experience in space flight a little yeah. over and um pushing 60 and and so that's not that much time when you consider all that there is to try to do out there and how um challenging it is. Um, To go to Mars, as an example, um, Mars is um, 35 million miles away at its closest approach. Um, When it's uh, on the other side of the sun from us, because we're like in a racetrack around the sun and we're in different lanes of the racetrack, we're on the inner lane compared to Mars, it's on the outer lane. So we lap Mars every couple of years. And when we lap it, we're 35 million miles away, we jump off Earth and we skip across 35 million miles and we get to Mars, but then we're riding Mars all the way around another lap before we can come back because when we're opposite the sun from Mars, they're about 250 million miles away. That's incredible distance when you consider that's a thousand times further away than the moon is today, 250,000 miles from us. So an immense amount of challenge to overcome to do this, but we are building upon capabilities that it's within reach. And 2033 looks like a, a great target time to be putting crew on Mars. So to Tom's initial question, today at Orbital ATK, I'm building uh, systems that are serving both the space station cargo resupply for crew on our Antares rocket uh, with what we call a Cygnus resupply capsule. And on the other side of the equation, the beyond low Earth orbit stuff, I build the boosters and the launch aboard escape system that goes on the Orion capsule for the space launch system in Orion that will do all that deep space stuff. Um, and the first flight of that big rocket uh, is in 2019. It is uh, 
more powerful than Apollo. Uh, it'll, it's immense. Um, it'll do, uh, in its final configuration, 130 tons of capability payload to uh, low Earth orbit, or about, uh, that's the equivalent of about 50 tons on escape to, uh, to the moon or Mars. So it's an Im immense amount of capability. Um, even at that, we went to the moon and did a touch and go with one vehicle and one capsule got back. To go to sustain presence out there, it's going to take six of those big rockets and one with crew and the others with cargo to do a convoy to Mars. So it's, it's a very ambitious program. Exciting to look forward to. And uh, Charlie, what uh, you know? What role do you see EAA and general aviation playing in the future space program? And how do you think young people are part of that? Well, I, you know, we all have our own um, life experience to refer to for stuff like that, Chris. And and uh, you know, I I find that everybody uh, that uh, is interested in participating in aerospace in general means aviation and space. Um, these are things that fly. These are things that leave our planet. And those who find themselves intrigued to pursue careers there or to be um, aficionados of tend to be uh, from that total community. So like I said, all of the uh, original Apollo era astronauts were military test pilots. All of them were exposed to general aviation as kids. Um, uh, you know, being able as a young person to be um, you know, attached to Young Eagles program, attached to aviation and get the taste of that, provides the first step that could be, you know, the, the, the person who actually sets foot on Mars someday or is the flight controller on the ground or the designer of a system in the spacecraft. Um, the connectivity you can get in real time with your own life with aviation and the inspiration that gives to pursue a bigger career as a part of a bigger organization that can do space exploration. They're, they're obviously linked, and uh, and so what I see for EAA is 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 fostering that connection. Um, Young Eagles is a great program; it's inspiring kids to be involved, and uh, we need to then give them the pathways to go do other things with that, depending on what their own aspirations are. Um, but I see them really well linked, and um, just a natural linkage. Well, this summer, of course, we're going to have uh, several of the Apollo astronauts. Mm -hmm. We're actually right around 11 right now. I right. Um, you know, I know you probably know some of them, but are you looking forward to seeing them at AirVenture? Can you touch on what it's like to see some of the veterans from the Gemini Mercury pro or Gemini and Apollo program? Yeah, absolutely. They're one of you know they're they're all very great people, and um, they were our mentors when I was flying in the shuttle program, and they're still very much part of our community. We have. Uh, an astronaut reunion every two years. Um, we run into each other at a variety of different events. We have uh, all together sponsored a program uh, through the Astronaut Hall of Fame. Um, we've sponsored a program of uh, astronaut scholars, um, a scholarship foundation that the astronauts have all uh, created an endowment for, um, put scholarships into universities around the country that focus on on science and technology degrees, and it's a unique scholarship in that um, uh, the teachers in the universities select students who are deserving of an astronaut scholarship once they're already there and studying. It's a different kind of thing. So we will get together with uh, Apollo and and uh, shuttle astronauts will get together and we'll go present scholarships like that together. A lot of different places that we interface and intersect, and um, having them all here, as many of them that can be here. 
uh, for the 50th of Apollo. It's going to be a really great event. And uh, it's great to hear them get together and tell the stories, too. Yeah, there are, there are some interesting there, there ones are some there. interesting stories. <laughs> interesting stories. <laughs> All right. Well, we are definitely uh, getting up against the clock. Uh, Charlie, we can't thank you enough for taking some time out of, uh, out of your day to spend some time with us, visit with us, share some stories. You know, more so than that, I mentioned this a moment ago, we certainly appreciate what you do for EA, uh, your involvement with the board. Uh, and, uh, and, of course, uh, more selfishly, uh, you write a column for us in Sport Aviation. You write flight tests every month. It's, uh, it's a privilege of mine to, uh, to be one of the first people on this end to read that. Um, and uh, and I, I, I promised myself I wouldn't mention uh, that time that I, uh, that I found a math error that wasn't yours. But it was in a paper you were quoting. But uh, I'll just be patting myself on the back uh, as I uh, as I pack my things and leave my job. <laughs> but anyway, um, that's great. Kid, kidding aside, Charlie, it's uh, it is a privilege to uh, to work with you on on that uh, every month, even uh, even remotely and distantly. So uh, with that, Charlie, thank you. thank you once again for your time, and uh, thanks everybody out there for listening. Please uh, send us the feedback, send us uh, send us your reviews, get those posted out there. And we'll all chat next time uh, when we're cleared to land on the green dot.